A few years back, my friend Justin Warner from Food Network moved out to South Dakota. He opened a ramen joint, and he is always posting pictures of all the great food he's not only cooking, but eating all over South Dakota. He's always telling me to come visit. And you know, one of the best ways to experience a new place is to eat your way through it. But it's equally important to live your way through it, too. And when you summer in South Dakota, you can fill up on all the lake days, hikes, rides, and small-town strolls that'll leave you with a regained sense of wonder and a hunger to do it all over again. See why there's so much South Dakota, so little time at Travel South Dakota. I've heard you say that people don't seem to balk when Thomas Keller, for instance, a very (laughs) famous, world-renowned white chef, serves fried chicken at one of his restaurants, charging $30, more than what you were charging. Yeah. No one seems to blink at that. No, it's true. I mean, obviously, he's an amazing chef who I respect a lot. But, you know, it's also in Napa and wine country, and when people look at that location versus West Oakland, they just have an idea in their mind of what they should be spending. But whose fried chicken's better, Tanya? Well, my fried chicken's better. <laughs> <laughs> of course. This is The Sporkful. It's not for foodies, it's for eaters. I'm Dan Pashman. Each week on our show, we obsess about food to learn more about people. Now, before we get to the show, you know how I'm always telling you about all the perks you get when you subscribe to our newsletter? Well, we are about to do a live taping with a special guest for a very small audience, and you have to be subscribed to our newsletter to get first crack at tickets. So sign up by October 30th. That way you won't miss the invite. You can do it right now, in fact. Go to sporkful.com slash newsletter. Thanks. Okay, on to the show. Tis the season for cookbooks. As the holidays approach, there are a bunch of exciting cookbooks coming out. So in a couple of episodes over this fall, we're going to be featuring the people behind several of them. Today, I'm talking with two chefs who are reinventing Southern food, each refusing to be pigeonholed in the process. Neither one is originally from the South, and they came to Southern food in very different ways. Later on, I'll talk with Tanya Holland, who you just heard, about bringing Southern traditions to the West Coast to create what she calls California soul. My first guest, Vishwesh Bhatt, came to the South as a teenager and over time embraced the region in his cooking and his identity. Vishwesh, who goes by Vish, was born and raised in Gujarat, India. His father was a physicist. His mother was a stay-at-home parent. Growing up, his father would take him food shopping at the market, where Vish met farmers and learned about where his food came from. He spent afternoons hanging out in the kitchen while his mom cooked. She'd have him peel potatoes to keep him busy. So food was a focal point, but Vish had no interest in pursuing it as a career. He thought he'd get a much more glamorous job in the government bureaucracy. I thought that was the, the greatest job one could have, right? Because when you, when you grow up in, in a place where there's a lot of bureaucracy, you know, those are the people you interact with the most. So if you want something done, you have to go meet somebody and then they will stamp a paper that then passes on to somebody else who stamps another paper. And I thought, these people have some power. You know, you could sit in a chair all day. Somebody would bring you tea and snacks. And, you know, you just... It was, <laughs> you just stamp things. Yeah. <laughs> it seemed like that was the thing to do. <laughs> in the mid-80s, after Vish finished high school, his family moved to Austin, Texas. Now, as you'd imagine, this was quite a change from Gujarat. Texas was spread out and big, big roads, big houses, big supermarkets. But when it came to food, Vish found some unexpected similarities. Things like okra and tomatoes, eggplant, beans. Of you know, They were not the same variety of beans, but they were beans. I recognized them. Then dry stuff like lentils and, and black-eyed peas and chickpeas. Seeing chilies, dried chilies. Like all that stuff was very easy for me to make a connection to the foods I had grown up eating. That sort of made me think immediately about 
how much these foods were connected. And I gather your mom adapted pretty well to cooking with the ingredients there and some of the dishes there. Absolutely. We discovered tacos and and, uh, she discovered refried beans. And so she decided she was going to make tacos uh, for for one dinner party and have some friends over, their dad's colleagues. And so she made this big pot of... uh, it was a mix of, of uh, black eyed peas and, and chickpeas that she cooked and then mashed and then sort of cooked in the style of making refried beans and seasoned with lots of cumin and chili and lime juice and a little bit of tomato. And it became, you know, something that everybody really enjoyed. So Vish's mother liked experimenting in the kitchen, mashing up ingredients and dishes in ways that she found worked well. Vish, meanwhile, left Texas and enrolled at the University of Kentucky. But he had a little too much fun there. His GPA was pretty low. He wanted to get a master's degree in public administration for that government bureaucrat job, but with his bad grades, he didn't have a lot of options. He got into the University of Mississippi in Oxford, which is where his family had moved. His dad had gotten a job teaching there. But Fish did not want to go to Mississippi. The film Mississippi Burning had just come out, about three civil rights workers shot dead in the state. The film depicts Klan members burning crosses. Fish imagined this was what he'd encounter in Oxford. But if you wanted to go to grad school, he didn't really have a choice. So he went. Yeah, I mean, I had every intention of leaving uh, after a year. Uh, or, you know, even, you know, it's like maybe a semester or two and then I'm out of here. I had gone in f- sort of, you know, already tensed, clenched jaws thinking, oh, I'm going to Mississippi. They're going to, you know, there's going to be some sort of a dust up. And there wasn't. There was actually, hey, you must be new in town. Come, you know, come to this party or come meet this people or, you know. Uh, let's show you around. Have you been here? You know, do you know, you know, that sort of, it was was immediately very welcoming. And so it became, you know, two semesters became 30 years. Pretty quickly after arriving, Vish had two important realizations. He loved Oxford and he didn't want to be a government bureaucrat, which meant he didn't want to finish his master's degree. So what do you do? I mean, I, you know, I I, I do what a lot of people do. I start, you know, being depressed and drinking. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> uh, I mean, I, I laugh now, but yeah, it was it was a terrible time. You know, I, I didn't I didn't know what to do. You know, I mean, the world had changed. I'd studied political science uh, in an, in an era where you know everything was black and white. You had Cold War, bad guys, good guys. Clearly, I was not enjoying what I thought was going to be the greatest job that I was going to do ever, and didn't want any part of that. And so, you know, I'm 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 essentially uh, you know at this point a, a bum. Vish was living with his parents, no longer in school, with no idea what he wanted to do with his life. And just like when he was a kid, when he didn't have anything to do, his mom put him to work in the kitchen. So there was a vegetarian restaurant on the square in Oxford called the Harvest Cafe, where my mother cooked once a week, uh, and she made uh, a thali, a Gujarati thali, which, you know, a thali is one of those Big dishes. Platter a platter with, with, little, with several, little, several little dishes, little dishes right? Uh, she would make 20 of those every Tuesday, and they would sell out. Had she been a professional chef before? Nope. So how did she get into it? Somebody came to eat at the house, and they said, hey, would you do this at the restaurant? And she said, okay. So she's doing this once a week at the Harvest Cafe, right. making 20 thalis, which are selling out every yep. week. And so she gets you in there? She gets me in there because she and dad are, are uh, going on vacation for the summer. And the people that uh, own the restaurant, they're like, this Tuesday thing has become quite a thing. What are we going to do about it? And she said, oh, my son can come in, fill in while I'm out. He needs something to do. So, so, what, so when she told you about this plan, what was your first thought? I was like, I don't know how to, you know, cook all this stuff. And she's like, well, you can figure it out. Plus, you know, you're staying at the house for free. So the least you can do is, you know, do something. Help me out here. Did your mother train you in any of these things? Did she, like, give you recipes or pointers? No. no. 
she just had confidence that I could do it. Uh, and I, I had full confidence that I was going to suck at it. Uh, <laughs> and, and somehow I didn't. So, right. <laughs> uh, and what happened, this is where the learning from my mother had come in. I could see stuff on the stove, like, oh, that, that pot of beans needs more liquid. That rice is done. I'm going to turn it off and move it. I mean, without having people having to tell me, I knew because I had watched my mother do these things. But I didn't know I knew them, right? The folks around me were noticing me doing that. And so they were like, you want to work a couple of more days here? And I was like, you want me to work a couple of more days? Yeah, sure. While Vish was working there, a chef from New Orleans, John Currents, had come to Oxford and opened a new restaurant next door called City Grocery. Vish started going in for dinner, sometimes two or three nights a week. The food there seemed more creative, and everything was plated beautifully. He wanted to work there, but he didn't think he had the experience for it. But then... Uh, what happened is I, I ran up a bar tab. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, and, you know, John and I have been friends, and, you know, are, are, we're becoming friends. And he's like, look, you know, we, we got to talk about this bar tab. How about you just, you know, come a come couple of days and work it off, and then we'll be all square. And I started learning very quickly. That same same process again. Where like I knew, hey, that milk for the grits is about to boil over. It, it came naturally. Naturally, to you. those things came, you know. Right. And and that again, they were noticed. And and I started having fun. And I started learning. That's when I decided this is what I want to do for a living. After a few years working for John Currents at City Grocery, Fish decided he needed to learn more. He was really going to pursue cooking as a career. He left Oxford, went to culinary school, and worked in Miami, Colorado. In 2002, he returned to Oxford and to City Grocery. His relationship with John had changed. Now they saw each other as collaborators and potential partners. They wanted to expand, but weren't sure in which direction. We had these conversations about cooking Indian food, and I've refused to do that. Like, hey, you know, what What if he had a small Indian restaurant? You know, it was like, nope, not doing it. I mean, there were several reasons. One, because I didn't want to be that guy in a, in a small town that was doing Indian food. Two, I didn't really know, and I still don't know that much about Indian food, right? I mean, I can cook five or six things that I learned, but they're very regional. I mean, I, I grew up in Gujarat in a, in a vegetarian family, and I can cook those dishes. Uh, but, you know, there's so many other things that I know— very little about. You said you didn't want to be that one guy in a small town with the Indian restaurant. Right. What is it about being in that position that you didn't want? Uh, I, you know, I, because I mean, I had this view of food that was a lot more than that. I, I liked other flavors. I liked other techniques. I wanted to be able to do that. And I, I was afraid that if that's what I started doing, that's all I would do uh, and never be able to do the other stuff. So John and Vish decided to open Snack Bar. Initially, it was supposed to be a New Orleans-inspired French bistro with classic dishes like trout almondine, steak frites, and duck confit. While they were preparing to open, Vish's mom passed away. Soon after they opened their doors, Vish found himself experimenting in the kitchen. At some point, I, I am not sure exactly why, but there, there, there was this slight turn towards starting to season things with spices I'd grown up with. Uh, so initially it was just, hey, I'm going to make this beurre blanc, but I'm going to use some curry leaves in the reduction. And that turned into, hey, I'm going to cook these collard greens, but I'm going to cook them with, with ginger and garlic and asafoetida like my mother used to. 
Vish was playing with local cuisines and dishes, but adding a taste of home, just like his mom had done in Texas when she made her black-eyed pea tacos. He was also obsessed with using the best produce from local farms, like his dad taught him when they went to the markets in Gujarat. I didn't think it out. It wasn't premeditated. It happened. I liked the results. The folks who were coming in clearly loved the results. And so it became then more and more the thing that I would do. Now, looking back on it, it feels like, yes, I mean, subconsciously, I was thinking about my mom and thinking about those flavors and thinking about the food I'd grown up with and how, uh, you know, how much fun it was being around that table. And I wanted to share that. One of the dishes that you share the recipe for in your cookbook, which has become one of the most popular snack bar, is the okra chaat. Yes. I know chaat is sort of a general name mm-hmm. for Indian snacks. Yep. Um, tell me about the okra chaat. Uh, so <laughs> a lot of the credit for that dish goes to uh, a restaurant actually in New York, Devi, which uh, Suvir Saran used to helm. It was the first time I saw okra that was fried without any batter. And I knew you know, very well that fried okra is a big thing for folks in the South and and I wanted to make it with things that I already had. I didn't I didn't want to have to special order stuff. But peanuts are a good, you know, something we have on hand. Everybody around here knows what peanuts are. It's a, it's a good southern ingredient. So okra, peanuts, onions, chilies. Like, how do we make this sweet and sour lime juice and then sweet? Well, sorghum, you know, has that. And then next thing we know, everybody's talking about it. And it's, it's a dish that we do every summer now. I mean, people start asking about it by end of April. Like, hey, when's the okra chat coming back? Right. And it's, the answer is when the okra comes in. Right. You know. Quick question on the okra chat. If I don't have sorghum, can I use maple syrup? Absolutely. You can use maple syrup. You can use molasses. You can use honey. So, yeah. It sounds so good. Since Vish opened Snack Bar in 2009, the restaurant's become well-known for its combinations of Southern fare, French bistro cooking, and Indian influences. It doesn't fit neatly into any category, and that's what Vish and his many customers like about it. In 2012, he received his first James Beard nomination. He was actually nominated seven years in a row, until 2019 when he finally won for Best Chef in the South. Back in August, he released his first cookbook, I Am From Here, Stories and Recipes from a Southern Chef. As I said, it includes the recipe for that okra chaat alongside Gujarati black-eyed peas, cornbread with Kashmiri chili and curry leaves, and green tomato pie with cinnamon and cloves. I asked him to read the beginning of the introduction. I want people to see me as I see myself. An immigrant, a son of immigrants, who chose to make the South his home, and in doing so became a Southern Chef. I claim the American South, and this is my story. The title of your cookbook is I Am From Here. Yes. Why did you want to call it that? Uh, for, for several reasons, right? I mean, because I, I am an American. I, I'm a citizen. I, I grew up here. I, I work here. And, and so because you get this question, you know, a lot of times, uh, where are you from? Uh, and then you say Oxford, Mississippi, and followed by, no, no, where are you really from? So that's, that's one. The other is to say that, you know, food is, is not stagnant that it, it changes, it, it evolves as people bring new ideas. Now, if something is very good and it's somebody's tradition, respect it, right? But that doesn't mean you can't have another tradition and, and expand that, you know, so you can use the ingredients and certainly put your stamp on it and certainly make it yours. 
that's Vishwesh Bhatt. His cookbook is called I Am From Here, Stories and Recipes from a Southern Chef. You can get it now wherever books are sold. Coming up, I'll talk with Chef Tanya Holland, who turned her West Oakland restaurant into a national destination by embracing her family's Southern roots and pushing soul food forward in the process. Stick around. It's time to open up a can of advertisements. In the Pashman household, we're already big fans of Tillamook shredded cheese. In fact, I used it in developing many recipes in my cookbook. And now I'm getting into their ice cream. Tillamook ice cream is made with more cream, so you get smooth and dreamy scoops each time. You may not realize it, but this is why a lot of the store-bought ice cream doesn't taste the same as what you get in, like, in an ice cream parlor. But with Tillamook, they don't skimp on the cream. These people know dairy, okay? Tillamook makes a great, rich vanilla ice cream with real crushed vanilla bean seeds. They have an Oregon strawberry, sweet strawberry ice cream with ripe Oregon strawberry pieces. The one that I really love is the mudslide flavor, a smooth chocolate ice cream with a ribbon of rich fudge and chocolatey chips. You want to move the spoon around to get fudgy and chocolatey chips and the ice cream all in the same bite each time, and it's just so, so nice. And like I said, I just trust Tillamook when it comes to dairy. They make over 200 different dairy products, and the brand is farmer-owned and led by dairy experts. Find Tillamook ice cream near you at Tillamook.com. That's T-I-L-L-A-M-O-O-K.com. The weather's warming up. Have you nailed down your summer travel plans yet? I can tell you, we're working on ours and things are booking up, which is why you should be thinking about Norwegian Cruise Line. They have been raising the standards of cruising for more than 55 years. Let me tell you, when you cruise with NCL, you get award-winning specialty restaurants, immersive entertainment, and the most thrilling experiences at sea. Now, look, one of the great things about cruises in general is that you can visit and explore all kinds of different destinations, all with the ease of unpacking your bag just once. But Norwegian Cruise Line, they take cruising to another level and they take food to another level. With no set dining and entertainment times and no formal dress codes, you have the flexibility to design your ideal vacation. They have an incredible variety of truly authentic and fresh dining and bar experiences complemented by exceptional service. Listen to this. There are up to eight complimentary and nine specialty dining options per ship and up to 23 bar and lounge options. Come see why NCL's guest first philosophy means exceptional service and unforgettable memories. Book your next vacation at ncl.com. I enjoy a nice glass of wine, but I don't pretend to be an expert in wine. I usually just want a wine that's high quality, delicious, and not too expensive. And to me, that's Bogle Family Vineyards. And here's the thing about Bogle. This is a third-generation family-owned winery from California that makes exceptional wines for about 10 bucks a bottle. Bogle wines consistently earn best buy designations and high ratings from wine enthusiasts. And let me tell you something. The folks at Wine Enthusiast, they drink a lot of wine. They drink a lot of fancy, expensive wine. And yet they still keep giving great ratings to Bogle. And Bogle Vineyards has so many different kinds of wine. Whatever your mood, whatever you're eating, there's a wine for you. they got this great Pinot Grigio that's crisp and fruity, goes well with spicy foods, with fish. They have a classic Chardonnay that's balanced, amazing, with a pork tenderloin or butter chicken. I like to take that Chardonnay and do what Jacques Pepin taught me, a couple of ice cubes in your glass of Bogle. If Jacques Pepin says it's okay, then it's okay. And there's the Bogle Pinot Noir, refined and elegant with bright fruit and about as food-friendly as a red wine can be. You're not going to believe it's only $10. Neither will your friends if you tell them. So pick up a few bottles of Bogle wherever you buy your favorite wines. Please drink responsibly. I just got a very wonderful shipment of goodies from the folks at Reese's. And let me tell you something. These people remain the absolute worldwide leaders in bringing together chocolate and peanut butter. Of course, we know that peanut butter cups remain 
transcendent. But have you tried the Reese's Sticks? They're wafers with peanut butter in between each wafer, all coated in chocolate. I mean, the combination of sweet chocolate and salty peanut butter just brings people joy, and the folks at Reese's do it better than anyone. So shop Reese's Peanut Butter Cups now at a store near you, found wherever candy is sold. Welcome back to The Sporkful. I'm Dan Pashman, and I got some big news on the Cascatelli front for you. Cascatelli is now at Whole Foods across the New York metro area, and it's on sale there through the end of October. If it does well there, it'll be coming to Whole Foods stores across the country. So please, if you live anywhere in the New York metro area, head on over to Whole Foods and stock up. Thanks. Okay, back to the show. Tanya Holland is a chef, cookbook author, and host of the cooking show Tanya's Kitchen Table on OWN, the Oprah Winfrey Network. Her latest cookbook is California Soul, Recipes from a Culinary Journey West. In it, she says she's not from the South, but that's really where her family's story begins. Tanya was raised in Rochester, New York, near the Canadian border, but her parents were born and raised in the South. As a child, she spent summers visiting her grandparents in Virginia and Louisiana. My grandfather had built this sort of shack on the property, and he had a little penny candy store where he sold uh, pralines and pickles. And, you know, he knew everybody in the neighborhood. They had a fig tree. And I remember playing with my cousin, and the neighboring kid, uh, Toby, leaned over the fence, and he said, Daphne, Tanya, give me some figs. <laughs> give me some figs. <laughs> it was like, like, Toby, leave us alone. And, you know, my grandmother at the stove frying fish was one of her things, you know, shaking it, in, the flour in the bag, you know, before people were doing shake and bake. I remember my my grandmother, um, on my paternal side, my grandmother Holland loved to bake cakes. They would mail stuff at the holidays. Um, you know, my grandmother would mail us her fruit and nut cake. I remember my grandmother shipping my mom pecans and filet powder and all these ingredients so she could make gumbo and, you know, things she was familiar with, pecan pie for the holidays, and then inviting their new friends over to eat that food. And my mom became known for, you know, her gumbo, her chitlins, um, cornbread. But then they also formed this gourmet club when I was seven that lasted 20 years. and 20 they, years? Yeah, 20 years. The gourmet club was a monthly dinner, usually organized around some culinary theme. Couples took turns hosting. Everyone would bring different dishes, and it was a way to try foods that they wouldn't otherwise have a chance to eat. They cooked cuisines from around the world, from the usual suspects of French and Spanish, Italian, but also like they did an Alsatian Rhine dinner, a Polynesian luau. I'm, at the time, an only child, so I'm kind of like running around the house and, you know, trying to stay out of the way, but not really, right? Because I'm, <laughs> I want to know what's going on. My parents are preparing... The main dish, for instance, here's a dish that stayed in my mom's repertoire was chicken cacciatore. Oh, my God. I actually want to go make some now because it's so good. Like, <laughs> my mouth just started watering. Right. Everybody shows up with their dish. Um, my parents set the table. So, you know, I learned about place settings and setting the table and, you I'm know, candles. A fairly, a fairly formal place setting. Yeah. Tablecloth, cloth napkins, candlesticks. Absolutely. And that's, you know, one of the few times that we would dine at the dining table in the dining room, not the kitchen table that's in the kitchen. Back then, I think people were were able to live what you call the American dream, right? And my my parents didn't come from much, and this was their first home, and they were very proud to have people over and uh, to entertain in that way. 
you know, it was three black couples and three white couples for 20 years. And so I just assume like that's how the world worked. You know, people are going to get along over food and things are going to be integrated, even though there was issues in our neighborhood. But my parents were just open to anyone. Through the Gourmet Club, Tanya developed an early interest in cuisines of the world and learned that food and hospitality can bring people together. These ideas would eventually form the foundation of her career. She just didn't know it yet. She studied Russian language and literature at the University of Virginia and wanted to be an ambassador, but she never took the foreign service exam. She said she was intimidated by it. Instead, in 1988, she moved to New York and ended up waiting tables at Bobby Flay's Mesa Grill. Bobby was this new up-and-coming chef. A lot of celebrities, a lot of other chefs came in there and dined. It was a very energetic, exciting time. And then I also was influenced by him and inspired. Tanya told Bobby she wanted to do for soul food what he was doing with regional American food. So I had been taking some cooking classes on the Upper East Side, and I told him I was thinking of going to cooking school. I wanted to be a restaurateur. Why restaurateur and not chef? Well, I wanted to be around the, the people, the, the variety of people, you know, and guests. I mean, that's really what I learned from my parents is hospitality. Back then, you know, nobody was calling anyone. You just knock on the door, ring the doorbell. Hey, I'm in the neighborhood. And my mom would fix someone a plate um, and just welcome them. And that's just where I saw myself. Tanya went to culinary school in France, thinking that degree would be her ticket into New York's restaurant scene. She got back and started looking for jobs at the top restaurants there. I didn't get into the kitchens that I had hoped to. You know, I was looking to get into these New York Times four-star kitchens, and uh, they were very patriarchal, you know, and uh, a lot of women weren't welcomed, or if we were welcomed, it was desserts or salads. And my name reads pretty Anglo, you know, Tanya Holland, and I'd arrive, and it was like, oh, nope, sorry, position's full, or... I would maybe get in the kitchen and do a stage, which is where you work for free and then, you know, not being offered a job or just not even get in the door. So that was really disappointing because I was a hard worker. I am a hard worker. And I just wanted to have the opportunity to learn from the best. Tanya did manage to pick up cooking jobs here and there. But in 2000, the restaurant kitchen world had left her burnt out. She went back to waiting tables. Then a friend told her about a very different kind of opportunity. The Food Network is looking for an African-American female chef. Are you interested? I was like, I guess. I think so. (laughs) Why not? I never thought of it. I never thought it was something I would do at that point in my career because the examples were like Julia Child and Jacques Pepin. And so I went there for the talent test um, in front of the camera, and I was kind of like, you know, like (laughs) I didn't know what I was doing. But then they put us through media training, and I was hired the show was called Melting Pot, but there would be like Melting Pot Nuevo Latino, and then yeah. there would be Melting Pot Eastern European. Yeah, yeah. And, and then that episode would be hosted by a chef with that kind of expertise. Yeah, and I did soul food, and that's really where I kind of became known for uh, cooking soul food, modernizing it, elevating it. What were you told about what your role on the show would be? <laughs> Well, not a lot. I mean, you know, we were kind of really thrown to the wolves. I mean, they just kind of gave us this little script, like, okay, from point, you know, minute three to minute 10, you're going to put the eggs in the bowl and stir the milk. (laughs) And you're going to smile. You're going to say, welcome to Melting Pot. And then from minute, you know, 12 to 17, you're going to add the cornmeal. And then maybe you and Cheryl will have some sassy conversation. (laughs) It's like, okay. Right. Yeah, it was kind of, it wasn't authentic, really. 
And then I was sent on the Today Show to do a meal on Kwanzaa. And I didn't grow up celebrating Kwanzaa. They just um, kind of put me in a box and made all these assumptions and kind of had to act the part. But, you know, I'm I'm grateful that I had that opportunity. It definitely opened doors for me. Um, but, you know, now I feel like I get to live my more authentic self. Right. It feels like such a double-edged sword because mm-hmm. it, it, it opened doors. But when you walk through those doors, the hallways were pretty narrow. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> One door this TV show opened led to a cookbook deal. In 2003, Tanya published New Soul Cooking. That same year, she moved to the Bay Area, worked as restaurant manager for a few years. Colleagues started encouraging her to open her own place. She found a space in West Oakland and in 2008 opened Brown Sugar Kitchen. So I opened my doors with, you know, a menu of like, okay, I'm good at frying chicken and making biscuits and some pastries. And again, it was a a community that was historically African-American, but there weren't a lot of African-American um, centric restaurants there. So I thought this is an opportunity to to do this. I purchased one waffle maker. It's like, oh, I'll just do this chicken waffle dish. We'll see how that goes. And that was what I became known for. <laughs> <laughs> Which wasn't my intention. I didn't know that those machines were going to become the bane of my existence. Because <laughs> they, they go in and out like uh, used cars. They go in and out of service. Those waffle makers might have driven Tanya crazy over the years. But the end result? It was light and airy, yeast-risen, made out of cornmeal. I made my own compound butter with brown sugar and apple syrup because I started off, you know, serving maple, and it was $100 a gallon. So I looked for, you know, an alternative, and we just reduced some apple juice with some butter and brown sugar, and, you know, it was, it was, it was amazing. It is amazing if I ever make them again. I don't know. <laughs> kind of have PTSD. Right, right. Brown Sugar Kitchen started taking off and began to get media attention. Tanya published her second cookbook called Brown Sugar Kitchen. The New York Times wrote that her shrimp and grits, quote, seemed to be infused with concentric layers of flavor. Tanya told the Times she wanted to open many locations. She said, quote, shake shack of soul food. That's my vision. During this time, she also got to pursue her passion for traveling the world and using food to connect to different cultures. In 2015, she got an email from the State Department. It was regarding one of their foreign service officers who was stationed in Kazakhstan. He was from Kentucky. And he really missed soul food. So he said he got on the internet and he was looking for an African-American chef for Juneteenth. And he brought me over. I have a degree in Russian language and literature, so I finally could call my father and say the degree is finally paying off. (laughs) Just, you know, 30-some years later. Right, right. (laughs) There was a use for that. Right. And I cooked soul food for them. And I also cooked, for instance, with this chef who was from Uzbekistan. And I cooked plov with him, which is sort of a a rice and meat dish that's delicious. Like the rice gets really crispy at the bottom of the pan. And yes. Yeah. And actually, I was at a potluck a few weeks ago. And there was someone there who, that was his heritage. And he made plov. And I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> In 2019, Tanya moved Brown Sugar Kitchen from West Oakland to a bigger location in Uptown Oakland, a more upscale neighborhood. She also opened a second location at the famous San Francisco Ferry Building. It was the first black woman-owned restaurant to open there. From the outside, it looked like Tanya was becoming the restaurateur she always wanted to be. But behind the scenes, there were challenges. So I basically opened two restaurants within a couple weeks of each other in the beginning of 2019. So the Ferry Building... By the beginning of 2020, even before COVID, it just wasn't working out. The rent was really high. 
it was a great place to be, but we were in the back of the building, so that location didn't work. It was quick service, and I realized I'm a full-service person, you know, and it was really hard to translate my hot food into quick service um, at that time. The Ferry Building location closed in January 2020, after less than a year. As for the Uptown Oakland location, where she moved her original restaurant... The place in Oakland was, you know, more than twice the size of the original location, and I had partnered with someone, and the partnership wasn't working out, and then COVID hit. So... I tried the best I could. You know, we tried to pivot. We did a lot of takeout. Um, Staffing became very challenging. People left the area. I wanted to keep it open for the community and the culture, but it really wasn't serving me anymore. This past January, after 15 years, Tanya closed the Oakland Brown Sugar Kitchen. So now, you know, I have that experience and, um, you know, I'm trying to share that knowledge with people so, uh, you know, they can grow and not make some of the same mistakes, but also learn, you know, from what I learned. But still, Tanya, 15 years. Yeah, that was a good run. I mean, that's that's success in the restaurant business. It is. And I still have a reputation that follows me because that, you know, I was walking down the street Last week in the city of Oakland, worker saw me. I didn't know him. He's like, where's the fried chicken at? <laughs> and I was like, who, what? Yeah, I think people like look at me like, remember those old cartoons? And they just they just see bones. Like they see like a drumstick right, right. and a wing. They don't even see me, you know? So I was like, yeah, I don't have any today. Um, so am I right that for the first time in – in about 15 years, you don't own any restaurants right now. That's right. Yeah. How, do, how does that feel? It actually feels good right now. I, I finally um, am able to use the do not disturb feature on my telephone. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I had no, I was like, oh, wow, what a concept, you know? You know, now I have the opportunity to be more impactful in the industry because I'm not tethered to the stove or, you know, just confined to four walls. And I'm really enjoying it. Without a restaurant to run, Tanya's been doing more traveling. She went to Mexico City and Oaxaca to work with culinary students. She's traveled to Singapore, Hong Kong, Sweden, and Denmark to talk about food sustainability and climate change. Back in college, studying Russian, she imagined she'd be a government ambassador. Now she's become a culinary ambassador. Another thing Tanya's been able to do is write more. Her latest cookbook is California Soul, Recipes from a Culinary Journey West. It pulls from her experience living in California and pays homage to the many black food producers, farmers, and suppliers who make the state's food so special. And there are tons of examples of what Tanya means when she says California soul, like a fried artichoke po'boy or corn and ricotta hush puppies. I think it it definitely, again, shows more of my diversity of influences of, you know, my travels and um, the different cuisines I've been exposed to, the different ingredients, and it's not as restricted in, like, the the soul food sort of confinement. There's nods to, like, you know, the grilled calamari, but it's with— Salsa uh, verde, right? Yeah, yeah That but, one looked so good. Oh, my God, I want to eat but, that right with, now. But with mustard greens, you know? Right. So they're paying homage to the soul food, but, yeah, that's one of my favorites. I asked Tanya about her plans for the future. Any more restaurants in the works? It's so hard because I love providing uh, experience for people. I love creating the space. And, like, I would if, you know, I could still leave my phone on Do Not Disturb, you know. But I I know the headaches that 
come with being a restaurateur. Um, so I don't think that's in the cards. Tanya says she's okay with that. She's got plenty to keep her busy. She's also now the chair of the James Beard Awards and has been instrumental in making those awards more equitable. Beyond that? Well, I mean, I'm really proud of my my heritage. I'm really, I feel, I feel more connected to it now than ever. I had this idea I wanted to be an ambassador, and I just want to continue to travel around the world, tell people about the cuisine of African Americans, but also learn other cuisines, and just find that common denominator. That's Tanya Holland. Her latest cookbook, California Soul, comes out tomorrow, October 25th. You can pre-order it, or if you're listening to this a day late, just get it now. And like we said earlier, Vishwesh Bhatt's book, I Am From Here, is out right now. We're going to give away a copy of each cookbook to a winner from our newsletter list. So now you really want to get on that list, because you'll be the first to know about this special limited capacity live taping, and you'll have a chance to win one of these two cookbooks. If you're already on the list, you're already in. Nothing to worry about. If not, sign up by October 30th to have a chance to win all this cool stuff. Do it at sporkful.com slash newsletter. Next week on the show, I talk with the one and only Nigella Lawson. She'll talk about why cooking on TV didn't always come naturally to her. And she explains how she uses method acting to decide what to order in restaurants. Plus, she tells me the one condiment she keeps in her purse at all times. That's next week. This show is produced by me, along with senior producer... Emma Morgenstern. And producer... Andres O'Hara. Our editor is... Tracy Samuelson. Our engineer is... Jared O'Connell. Music help from Black Label Music. The Sporkful is a production of Stitcher. Our executive producers are Eric Eddings and Colin Anderson. Until next time, I'm Dan Pashman. And I'm Harris Coraloo in Miami, Florida, reminding you to eat more, eat better, and eat more better. Justin and so good. Thousands of summer deals at your Nordstrom Rack store. Save up to 60% on new arrivals from Vince, Rag and Bone, Adidas, Joe's, Marc Jacobs, and more. Great brands, great prices every day at Nordstrom Rack. But hurry for first dibs. Get your summer favorites up to 60% off at Nordstrom Rack today. Great brands, great prices. That's why you rack. Three great words. Free fries Friday. Especially when they're used in that exact order. Get a free medium fries with $1 minimum purchase. Bottom up, up, up. Bell one time on Fridays at participating McDonald's through 1231 24. Excludes tax, must opt in rewards.